you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Winnipeg, Manitoba, June 23rd. Evidence of a knife found in a discarded suit of Earl Nelson, alleged strangler, today linked him with the murders of two women in Detroit about June 1st, Chief of Detectives George Smith said today. Nelson was today committed for trial July 26th on charges of murdering Mrs. William Patterson and 14-year-old Lola Cowan here June 9th and 10th. Detective Sergeant John Hoffman of Detroit reached the city today to interview the prisoner. The Detroit Strangler used a knife to cut an electric light wire with which he strangled one of his victims. The knife, found in the suit which the Strangler left at a second-hand clothing store here, had a blade nicked and burned. Detectives say the blade was probably damaged in that way when it was used to cut the electric wire, the current arcing, and burning the blade. With this discovery, Earl Leonard Nelson became a strong suspect in the murders of Fannie Mae and Maureen Oswald Atorthy in Detroit, in addition to all those he had already been connected to. That same day, word also came from Philadelphia that he had been identified as the man who had pawned some jewelry, which was later identified as having been some of that taken from the murdered Mary McConnell. The murder of McConnell joined the rest as one in which Nelson was the likely culprit. In the end, 22 murders and one attempted murder were pinned on him. But how many weren't? I'm Andrew Gable, and this is episode 75, the third and final part of the story of Earl Leonard Nelson. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. The first two parts of this series summarize the crimes for which Earl Leonard Nelson was most likely responsible, finally culminating in the two Canadian murders which led to his eventual capture. This part's going to be the final one in this series, and in this one I want to go into his trial, which was, to be honest, a fairly straightforward one, some biographical information on Nelson himself, and finally, a number of crimes for which he might be guilty or might not. I already discussed one of these in part one. The murder of 76-year-old Isabel Galagos on August 19, 1926 in Stockton, California, was usually reported in the media of the day as having been one of Nelson's victims, though there were discrepancies in ML, and nothing was found which could make the link more concretely. Most websites and books discussing him leave Galagos out of his accepted body count. I'm a bit undecided on whether she was a victim of his or not. 
I lean toward not, to be honest. An aside here before I get much further into the episode, there's a photograph often labeled as being of Earl Leonard Nelson, showing him sitting in jail with his hands held out toward the camera. I thought the features of this man didn't look quite right, and eventually found out that the photograph is definitely not Nelson, but another serial killer named Jarvis Cato, who killed eight women in Washington, D.C. and New York City about a decade later. Anyway, once he was arrested on June 17, 1927, the case against Nelson proceeded quickly. Within 24 hours, the police were aware of all the biographical information I'll go into later. As described at the end of last episode, and the intro to this one, once his photo was circulated, identifications came in linking him to the majority of the crimes already described. No less than 50 people had made identifications by June 23rd. From the beginning, debate raged over Nelson's mental state and whether an insanity defense would be feasible. Most, such as Dr. C.M. Hinks of the Canadian Mental Hygiene Association, felt that he was most likely not insane. Not mental disease, but lack of development in one part of his makeup is responsible for his horrible crimes, Dr. Hinks stated. He referred to Nelson as a, quote, moral imbecile, an old-fashioned term with unsavory associations with the eugenics movement. Outdated like most medical terminology of bygone eras, so-called moral imbecility is defined by A.F. Treadgold as Persons who from an early age display some permanent mental defect coupled with strong vicious or criminal propensities on which punishment has had little or no deterrent effect. The term most often seems to have denoted what we would call a sociopath today. Nelson definitely did have at least the presence of mind to attempt to hide his appearance, usually waiting until his hair was longer and until he had a bit of beard growth before murdering someone, then going to a barber, getting a haircut and a shave, either buying or stealing a new set of clothes, and usually assuming a new alias. He also had the presence of mind to at least make rudimentary attempts to conceal the bodies of his victims. I agree that these things do point to some degree of sanity. Nelson remained defiant about his crimes, however. When questioned by the newspapers, he stated only, I'm charged with two murders, but I'm not the one who done it. His defiance continued even when confronted with the fact that 50 people had identified him in connection with a score of crimes. All of them are wrong, he stated. He never admitted to any of the murders or attempted murders with which he was linked. It was also around this time that the media began referring to him as the Gorilla Man, referring to his perceived simian appearance and a general hunched posture and odd manner of walking, which I assume reminded someone of the sort of stiff-legged waddle gorillas have when walking on two legs. A trial for Earl Leonard Nelson was scheduled for July 27th. However, it was already late June, and the lawyers obtained for Nelson, James Stitt and Chester Young, put forth a petition to ask for the trial to be rescheduled, saying that they felt that just under a month was not sufficient time to prepare an effective case. Winnipeg's Chief Justice, T.G. Mathers, agreed with the two attorneys. Although Justice Daniel MacDonald was inclined to disagree, stating that in his opinion Nelson should be tried without delay because if he is not the man, then the human tiger is still at large and should be run to earth. In early July, he granted a delay of the trial, 
which was rescheduled for early November. This is a convenient point at which to start discussing the facts of Earl Leonard Nelson's life, and how it influenced Stitton Young's defensive strategy. Earl Leonard Farrell had been born May 12, 1897, in San Francisco to James C. Farrell and Fanny Nelson. His name was truly ironic, since he was later to act like a feral beast. But by the time he was two, both parents had died of syphilis, and Earl went to live with his grandmother, Jenny Nelson. It is at this time that his last name became Nelson. His grandmother was almost zealously religious, and probably accounted for Earl's obsession with the topic in later years. From childhood, Earl was strange. He exhibited what would probably be considered bipolar behavior from an early age, alternating periods of extreme hyperactivity and severe melancholy. During these melancholic episodes, he was seen to sit still for hours, staring blankly at the wall or acting as if he had heard voices. He would be sent to school in one set of clothes and return home dressed in a different one or inexplicably lose items. He also had disgusting dietary habits, drenching his food in olive oil and slurping up the resulting mush. At the age of seven, Earl was expelled from school for bizarre and oftentimes violent behavior, and when he was ten, an event occurred which likely had a lasting influence on his life. He was riding his bicycle when he recklessly decided to try to cross railroad tracks in front of a trolley car. The oncoming trolley collided with his bicycle, and he was sent flying to the street, where he suffered a grievous head injury. Earl later recovered, or at least its effects may not have been truly felt for years. After all, anyone who's at all familiar with true crime knows how many times head injuries feature in the backstories of serial killers. It was soon after this that Jenny Nelson died. Young Earl went to live with his Aunt Lillian and her husband. He had a succession of jobs, such as store clerk, cook, or bricklayer, but never managed to keep any for any length of time. He was prone to just stand around staring into the air, or even to simply abandoning work altogether. Earl's behavior whenever there was a guest in the house was unsettling to say the least. Either he would launch into profanity-ridden tirades, or he would stare at the visitor uncomfortably with a bizarre grin on his face. Sometimes he would walk on his hands or carry chairs around in his teeth. He hung around with young children rather than ones of his own age and by the age of 15, he had begun frequenting the brothels and drinking establishments of the so-called Barbary Coast district of the city. It was around this time that he began to disappear for days or even weeks at a time. His Aunt Lillian probably wondered where he kept getting the money he spent so freely, given that he apparently couldn't stick with a job. She might have had a partial answer when he was arrested for the first time. He had gone on one of his periodic benders, traveling northward, working odd jobs. In Plumas County, in the northern part of the state in the Sierra Nevadas, Earl was arrested for breaking into a cabin which he believed was vacant, but which it turned out wasn't. He had just turned 18 when he was sentenced to San Quentin for two years. When Earl got out of prison, World War I was in full swing, and he enlisted in the Army. He lasted only six weeks, before deciding army life was too much for him and deserting. He made his way to Salt Lake City and briefly toyed with the idea of becoming a Mormon before re-enlisting, this time in the Navy. 
He once again deserted, and after a few weeks, he once again re-enlisted, this time in the Army Medical Corps. This didn't last either. Seemingly not getting the message that the military life just wasn't for him, he once again enlisted in the Navy, and managed to last two months this time. It was said that he was an unpopular sailor, and spent almost all his time ranting about religion to his fellow sailors. On April 24, 1918, he began to complain of persistent headaches and was bedridden. On May 21st, he was committed to Napa State Hospital for the first time. It was recorded here that Earl continually read his testament or gazes fixedly into space, answers questions slowly, takes no interest in what is going on around him, shows some mental deterioration. Of his several stints in the armed forces, it was said, His reason for not working is that he did not want to serve the enemies of the Lord. He believes the beast spoken of in Revelation is, as 666 is either the Pope or the Kaiser. Diagnosed for the first time as a, quote, constitutional psychopath, Earl escaped from Napa for the first time in June of that year. He was recaptured and returned to the facility in July. By the time the next month rolled around, he had again escaped, and it wasn't until December that he was returned. The very next day after he was returned, he again escaped. Again he was recaptured. And then, predictably, yet again he escaped in May of 1919. And in a turn of events which likely wouldn't take place nowadays, the hospital just stopped trying to pursue him. Soon after he escaped the hospital, Earl Leonard Nelson, at the time just 22, had married 58-year-old Mary Martin, whom he had met while employed as a janitor at St. Mary's Hospital in San Francisco. During his employment here, he used the name Evan Fuller, and from what she told reporters and reiterated at the later trial, their time together seemed to be a catalog of eccentricity. She said that soon after they wed, she was stricken ill and required a blood transfusion, which her husband provided. He stayed by her side all day, from the time the hospital opened until the time visiting hours were over. She described how he would get angry when the doctors asked him to leave, and eventually began to become suspicious that his wife was carrying on an affair after he left. Sometimes, when they had visitors at the house, he would sit silently, not acknowledging them even when spoken to, staring at the walls. His eyes, she felt, took on an oddly vacant appearance when this happened. She said that on one occasion, he took one of her dresses from the drawer, cut it apart, and made himself a pair of pants from it. Taking a bath, for him, consisted of taking off his shoes and socks and pouring water on his feet. Once, he suggested, out of the blue, that they buy a house in Oakland, but he had only two dollars when he suggested this. Another time, he purchased a vacant lot in San Francisco, intending to build a house for them both. He started building it, alone, constructed a portion of wall roughly two feet high, and abandoned the effort, never to return to it. Oftentimes, he would just wander off while they were on walks. His relationship with religion was unusual, to say the least. When he accompanied his devoutly Catholic wife to church, she said that he never seemed to show any interest whatsoever. Sometimes, in fact, he would get up and leave in the middle of the sermon. Paradoxically, at times, he showed a near obsession with his subject. She said that once, when he had one of his spells while they were walking, he rushed into a pawn shop and bought a rosary, which he wore constantly. 
His headaches, from which he had always suffered, grew worse over time, and when he had his staring spells in the house, he would start saying he saw faces, and when they were out walking, they passed a store that had a painting of Jesus in the shop window. He stopped, pointed at it, and began to excitedly proclaim that it looked like him. Nelson's Aunt Lillian told Mary that she didn't know why she put up with his behavior. Honestly, she was beginning to get tired of his behavior too. She thought that his possessiveness was a bit charming at first, but it was now getting to the point where she could barely even interact with any other people without Nelson getting jealous. His wanderings were getting worse too, as there were times he'd just randomly wander off and be gone with th- for days or even sometimes weeks at a time. The couple moved to Palo Alto and both became employed at a school there. Mary as a laundress and Earl as a general handyman. One day, while Mary was out taking the laundry off the line, an elderly man who worked as a gardener began chatting with her. Nelson barreled out of the school building angrily, screaming at the old man. On other occasions, he would argue loudly with her, even while children were present. During one of these fights, he tore her wedding ring from her finger. That evening, Earl told Mary they were leaving, but Mary, who liked the job, told Earl that he could leave Palo Alto, but she was staying. She became so frightened by his expression when she told him this that she left and stayed at a friend's that night. When she returned in the morning, Earl was gone. He confronted her again when she was at work that day, attempting to attack her, but then he dove out a window and vanished. Only a week later, on May 19, 1921, she was contacted by the San Francisco police, who told her that her husband had been arrested. He had showed up at the house of Charles Summers at 1519 Pacific Avenue and claimed to be a plumber there to fix a gas leak in a pipe on the property. He descended into the basement and finding Summers' 12-year-old daughter Mary there, attempted to grab her. He was badly beaten by Summers' son and ran off. Eventually arrested on a trolley car, Nelson began exhibiting what the police felt were symptoms of insanity soon after he was brought to the station. He ran incoherently, acted oddly apathetic about the offense for which he was arrested, began having hallucinations of faces that had long been noted, exhibited lapses in memory, and at some point began to pluck out his eyebrows. When his wife came to visit him, he was in a straitjacket. Mary went to talk to Nelson's Aunt Lillian, who seemed familiar with his behavior, and she informed her that he had previously been in Napa State Hospital previous to her marriage. He had never mentioned this to his wife. And in fact, until the arrest, she hadn't even been aware that her husband's name wasn't actually Evan Fuller. An insanity hearing was held to determine Earl's mental fitness to stand trial. Two doctors who had questioned him in the prison felt that he was violent, but only dangerous to his wife and himself. They also felt that he was so far disordered in his mind as to endanger health and person. On June 16, 1921, at the order of Judge John Van Ostrand, Earl Leonard Nelson was returned to Napa State Hospital. The doctor who examined Nelson upon his arrival at the asylum, William Pritchard, said that he was well-versed in both religion and occultism. But he also realized that below Nelson's relatively calm exterior there was a darkness. He has seen faces, heard music, and at times believed people were poisoning him. Voices sometimes whisper to him to kill himself. 
says that if he were kept in jail, he would get something sharp and cut the veins in his wrists. But he said that Nelson seemed optimistic about life in general. The next day after he was admitted, Nelson attempted to escape the hospital, but was thwarted in his attempt. By July 5th, after further observation, the chief psychiatrist at Napa, Dr. J.B. Rogers, had labeled Nelson a constitutional psychopath with outbreaks of psychosis. The scattered records of Nelson's time at the hospital reveals that in the first year, he was generally a model inmate and had begun taking salversan, an arsenic-based antisyphilitic. On at least one occasion, he was thought to have been part of an escape plan, but by late 1922, he had become more restless and had begun refusing to take his antisyphilitic medication. He escaped on November 2, 1923, and later this day, he showed up at the house of his Aunt Lillian in San Francisco. He had his face right against the glass with a horrible crazy hat on, and I let out one horrible scream because he looked so awfully insane. His eyes were just black glaring in at me, and the children rushed up to me, and of course I opened the door because he is my flesh and kin, she later recalled. He acted so queer in the house, and I was scared to death of him because of the condition he was in. His legs were all bleeding with no stockings on at all, and old ragged shoes that he must have picked up on the ground when he escaped there. And I hurriedly gave him a suit of my husband's clothes and a cap and stockings and had him clean himself up. And I said, for goodness sakes, Earl, get out of here as quick as you can. After he left, as she continued, I rang up Napa State Asylum and told him who I was and that Earl was there and that I was scared to pieces of him. Two days later, Earl Leonard Nelson was found, still in San Francisco, and returned to Napa State. No more records of his time at Napa exist, save for a recollection by his wife Mary that when she visited him in the fall of 1924, he seemed to be suicidal. On March 10, 1925, however, he was released, with the hospital saying he was, quote, improved. We don't know anything more about where he was in 1925. Although late in the year, he showed up in Palo Alto and convinced his wife to take him back. After living with her for a few months, in February of 1926, she said, he again had one of his spells where he wandered off. He didn't return until June. Sometime after his return in June, he was employed for a short time as a handyman by a printer named Frank J. Arnold. More of his eccentricities became apparent during the time he was employed here. He carried his Bible with him everywhere he went. On several occasions, it was noted he would randomly stop working and stare into the sky for a while. Once he shaved a patch of his head and gave his hair to Arnold's wife to use his pillow stuffing. Once he took up a wheelbarrow and walked the streets of Palo Alto for hours, gathering up pebbles for no real reason. He would randomly abandon cars he was driving. He constantly laughed and talked to himself. Frank Arnold, however, swore that the man was harmless, just a bit odd. When a neighbor woman, Mrs. L.J. Casey, said she saw Nelson sitting in the middle of the field with no coat on, staring up into the sky and getting drenched by pouring rain, she told Frank Arnold that Earl was crazy and she didn't think he should keep him around. Although Frank once again laughed the objections off, saying Earl was just a harmless eccentric, his wife had also been disturbed by this behavior and pressured her husband to get rid of the handyman. 
In August of 1926, he again vanished. After this, Mary was not to see her husband again until his picture appeared in the newspapers, accompanied by headlines saying that he had murdered Lola Cowan and Emily Patterson in Winnipeg. But even when a reporter brought up that Clara Newman, Laura Beale, Lillian St. Mary, and Ollie Russell were all murdered between his wandering off in February and his return in June, and that the murder of Mary Nisbet took place soon after he wandered off again in August, she defended her husband and responded, I don't see how my husband could possibly be this dark strangler. I know he was mentally deranged, but he was not violently insane, and he was always good to me. But he had been violent, and he wasn't always good to her, having raped her several times. Unsurprisingly, his lawyers were to try an insanity defense. Back to 1927. The date of the trial had rolled around, and it started promptly on the morning of November 1st. Presiding was Mr. Justice Andrew Dysart. James Stitt provided Nelson's defense, and Robert Graham K.C. would take on the task of prosecutor in the case. The prosecution chose to focus mainly on the murder of Emily Patterson, as this was the one they had the most direct evidence tying Nelson to, although the murder of Lola Cowan was focused on to a lesser extent. The matter of his 20-odd American crimes, some of which could also be positively assigned to him, were not addressed. This, there seems to have been an understanding that those cases would be left open for separate prosecution. Should the Canadian jury fail to convict him of the Winnipeg murders, he could be transferred to Detroit for prosecution in the murders of Fannie Mae and Marina Torthy, and should that fail, he'd be sent to Philadelphia for prosecution in the Mary McConnell murder, and so on. From the beginning, the prosecution had a slam-dunk case against Nelson. They called a succession of witnesses, from Mrs. Hill, the proprietress of the boarding house in Winnipeg, who seemed oddly more concerned with the fact that Nelson hadn't paid his rent than with the dead 14-year-old girl kept in his rooms, to Bernhard Mortensen, the Dane who had found Lola Cowan's body. Also called were Mrs. Rowe, who ran the boarding house where Nelson had stayed in Regina, and a succession of motorists and trolley car drivers who had given him rides. The defense questioned William Haberman, the man who had seen Nelson on Emily Patterson's porch, doubting whether he could have identified the man he had seen from across the street. But all said and done, the first round of questioning was surely won by the prosecution. Next called was Mary Martin, Nelson's wife. She recounted her time with him and all the eccentricities and outright lunacy that accompanied it. She was a witness called by the defense, a witness meant to help further the idea of Nelson's insanity. The rather leading questioning by Stitt played up his time in, Na in Napa State Hospital and the time immediately following his assault on Mary Summers. He always seemed to me to be of a type bearing moral responsibility whatever, his wife said of him. But when Graham cross-examined her, he questioned whether it was insanity or just wild jealousy that led to Nelson's acts. Round two also went to the prosecution. The case against Nelson was beginning to look like a foregone conclusion. This whole time, meanwhile, Earl Leonard Nelson himself lounged in his seat, alternating between taking naps and just looking singularly uninterested in the fact that the question of his life or death hung in the balance. He really only looked mildly interested when his wife was on the stand. The other witnesses called were Lillian Fabian, Nelson's aunt, 
who likewise testified to his bizarre acts and how she was torn between loyalty to the child of her dead sister and absolute terror of the man she knew was teetering on the edge of sanity, if not already over it. Also called was Dr. Alvin Mathers, a psychiatrist associated with, the, with Winnipeg General Hospital, who testified that, in his opinion, no true psychopathy was present. After cross-examination by Stitt, he did eventually concede that Nelson was a constitutional psychopath, the same diagnosis made at Napa State Hospital. But he declared of the diagnosis that there were likely hundreds of people milling about the streets of Winnipeg with a similar diagnosis. Constitutional psychopath is another old medical term, which is pretty much seems pretty much to have been analogous to uh, the moral imbecile. It seems to have pretty much described what we would now know as an anti-so somebody who's antisocial. On November fifth, Justice Dysart gave his closing statements when court convened for the day. The jury retired at eleven fifteen to weigh their verdict and only 40 minutes later they came back with a verdict of guilty. Justice Dysart asked the convict if there was anything he wished to say in response to the verdict. By reason, I'm not guilty, he said. When the judge asked if he had anything else to say, Nelson, his head hung toward the back, said, Not that I know of. Earl Leonard Nelson was hung at Winnipeg's Vaughan Street Jail on January 13, 1928. So of all the crimes attributed to Earl Leonard Nelson, how many are there that he was responsible for that just haven't ever been connected with him? In the days and weeks after his arrest, many police departments, looking to close cases, chalked crimes up as Nelson's handiwork. The earliest murder called into question was the 1920 killing of a Swedish girl named Ulla Carlson. She had been employed as a maid in the home of Willard Brown, a wealthy resident of Piedmont, California, on the east side of Oakland in the foothills of the mountains. On the night of March 14th, Ulla had walked with a friend of hers to go catch the streetcar. When her friend had boarded, Ulla began to walk back toward home. At around 6.40 the next morning, Andrew Dalziel was, was catching a streetcar at the corner of Crocker and Lafayette Avenues when he found the body of a girl lying just off the sidewalk. He told the conductor of the streetcar when he boarded, and the conductor called the police. The body, of course, turned out to be that of Ulla Carlson. She had been beaten about the head and apparently strangled. The ground was ripped up and the vegetation flattened as if in a struggle. A handkerchief, smelling strongly of tobacco, was found nearby. Dark cloth fibers were found in the substance of the handkerchief, such as would result if it was kept in the pocket of a dark coat. According to some sources, a chloroform bottle was found lying on the ground nearby, something which police captain Walter Peterson felt might have been planted. Witnesses were eventually found, who said they heard a single scream at about 10.30 that night, indicating that, if the scream they heard was, indeed, Ulla Carlson, the attack on her was swift and overpowering. Another witness, a woman who actually saw Carlson alive as she disembarked from a streetcar, said that there were two men walking in front of her. It was believed that one of these two may have been the assailant. The autopsy revealed that Carlson's death was due to asphyxiation, not exactly a surprise, and that no other crime had been committed, ruling out the possibility of rape. Her, her body was cremated and returned to Sweden by her aunt, Christina Blomquist. 
One figure who entered the investigation into Carlson's death was a young man by the name of Carl or Charles Nelson, a carpenter who it was said at first had been rejected by Carlson, but later it was said that he was her fiancé. On March 29th, a 15-year-old girl named Ruth Washburn was attacked near the City Hall in Richmond on the north end of the San Francisco Bay. She said that at around 10 o'clock that night, she was passing by there when a man in a long black coat, probably 30 to 35, of medium height and clean-shaven, approached her and struck her over the head with something. Dazed from the attack, she said the man shoved a handkerchief over her mouth and was attempting to knot it around her throat. She bit the man several times, and then he cursed, threw her to the ground, and began to beat her. Washburn kicked the man and ran towards a nearby store where they notified the police of the attack. The police were operating under the assumption that Washburn's attacker was the man who had killed Ola Carlson about two weeks before. Several years later, after his arrest, it was said by police chief Fred here that Earl Leonard Nelson may have been responsible for the Carlson killing, and, by extension, possibly for the assault on Ruth Washburn as well. The fact that the handkerchief smelled heavily of tobacco and that Nelson was a heavy smoker was brought up as well as that the handkerchief showed signs of wood residue, indicating it may have been that of a carpenter, and Nelson worked as a carpenter on occasion. The attack would have been shortly after Mary Martin was released from the hospital when she received a blood transfusion from Earl. One of the instances of his raping her took, a, took place immediately after she was released. Earl was a heavy smoker, and a carpenter, true. But the carpenter evidence, at least could also point to Charles Nelson, who was the rejected lover slash fiancé of Carlson. It would have been a very different sort of attack for Earl as well, taking place outside rather than inside. But there are also similarities as well, with Earl striking his victims over the head on at least some occasions. Victim type would also seem to vary somewhat, with Carlson being considerably younger than Earl's usual victims. But he did seem to be flexible about that. As time went on, his victims got younger, and he did seem to attack young girls on occasion, as in his attack on Mary Summers that initially got him committed, and, of course, Lola Cowan. Nothing's impossible, of course, but nothing absolutely screams Earl Leonard Nelson in the Carlson case. The next cluster of murders that he's sometimes held responsible for took place beginning in August of 1925, which would have been soon after he was released from Napa State Hospital as improved. On August 23rd, the body of 62-year-old Elizabeth Jones was discovered by James Daly, tenant of the apartment building she managed at 3565 Market Street in San Francisco. Daly had quite possibly found Mrs. Jones's body earlier in the day, since he had found the door to her apartment open and Mrs. Jones lying on the bed, sleeping, he thought. But hours later, Daly and his wife returned home to find the door still standing open and Mrs. Jones still lying on the bed. One arm had been shoved behind her, as if forced back in a struggle, as it was said in the San Francisco Examiner. Her son Harold said he thought his mother always kept a good deal of money in the house, but only 70 cents was found. She was last seen at about 8.15pm on the night of August 22nd, showing a vacant room in the apartment building to a blonde man in a gray suit. The autopsy by Deputy Coroner Antonio Trabuco revealed that the woman had not died of natural causes, as had been Harold's initial reaction, 
but that she had likely been strangled by her own necklace, which had been twisted around her neck. The next day, however, word came from Dr. Shelby Strange that Elizabeth Jones's death had resulted from a combination of pneumonia and heart trouble, and that she had likely been dead for two days. Daisy Anderson lived at 601 Fell Street in San Francisco, with her husband and a son. The family also owned an adjoining building at 601A, which they rented out. On September 15th, the nude body of 45-year-old Daisy was found in the vacant room. Her purse, containing about $5 by estimation of the husband, was missing, as was a set of keys and two rings. Daisy's glasses were snapped in half. One half was wrapped in a handkerchief found in her apron pocket, and the other was found by the mattress. There were marks on her neck, which seemed to indicate strangulation, and spots of blood were found on the mattress. After an autopsy, however, Dr. Shelby Strange said that Mrs. Anderson's death was due to heart dilation and bronchial pneumonia. He believed she had removed her clothes during a fit of delirium. Death likely took place between noon and 2 p.m., on September 16th. Her husband disagreed with the autopsy's conclusion, however, stating that the last thing my wife would do would be to go into a vacant room, leave the door ajar, remove all our clothing, and lie down on top of a bed. She was not ill when I left her at 11 o'clock that morning, except for a slight cold. Coroner TBW Leland, however, lent a bit of sympathy to the husband's theory that his wife had been murdered. As he said, that the cause of death given by Dr. Strange didn't necessarily preclude strangulation, but merely that strangulation was not the primary cause of death. After all, Dr. Strange had not determined the exact cause of the marks on the neck, whether they were, indeed, marks of strangulation, or whether they were caused by congestion. Three strangulations in Philadelphia in the autumn of 1925 are also believed to be Nelson's handiwork that of a 22-year-old black woman named Ola McCoy on October 15th, that of 38-year-old Mary Murray on November 7th, and that of 33-year-old Lena Weiner on November 10th. I'm not going to go into the Philadelphia slangs too much beyond that. I'm still researching those, and I'm likely going to do a full episode on these, on these attacks, as there seems to have been a lot going on with these. I go back and forth on whether they were Nelson or not. The description given of a man seen near the home of Lena Weiner, about 35 years old, 5 feet 8 inches tall, and weighed about 170 pounds. His eyes shone brightly and lustrously. He had a heavy growth of dark hair that covered his face and was dressed in dark clothes with a light cap. Sounds much like a description that would surface of Nelson. Clothing was stolen from the home as well, but there were discrepancies as well. Lena Weiner was tied up. All three of these murders were in the same area of northwest Philadelphia as the 1926 attacks on Mrs. Richard Harvey and Verna Alice Greenlee, discussed in the last episode. Sometime around May 9, 1926, 69-year-old landlady Rose Valentino was found by her son Nicholas. She had been gagged with a handkerchief and beaten over the head with a curtain rod. $500 in rent money had been taken. Unfortunately, Nothing else can be learned about this murder. In any case, this can have been Earl Enner Nelson, not only because it seems unlike one of his crimes, but also because he was on the West Coast at the time, in the cooling-off period between the murders of Laura Beale in San Jose 
and Lily and St. Mary in San Francisco. The next occurred on August 9, 1926, when 72-year-old Lena Tidar, also from Newark, was found strangled with both a necktie and a towel by her husband Harry when he awoke. Harry Tidar was 75 and was deaf and partially paralyzed, and so was completely unaware of the murder of his wife taking place in the same room where he slept. In this case, nothing was stolen, but a cigarette butt was found in the home. Earl Leonard Nelson, at this time, was either employed as a groundskeeper by Frank J. Arnold, or had just been fired and wandered off again. In either case, he was likely in the San Francisco Bay Area at this time, making his guilt in the murder of Lena Tidar virtually impossible. Next was 35-year-old Alma Wells, whose nude body was discovered in a closet at a vacant apartment at 633 Guerrero Street in San Francisco's Mission District. Clothing was piled onto the body. There were signs of a struggle in the room, but examination revealed that the mark of a bludgeon on the head was the only apparent sign of violence. Bloody fingerprints were found on the door of a closet in w- into which Wells's body was shoved, but they were definitely not those of Dewey Blair, a business associate of Wells's, who had a realty company with her. The time of the murder was tentatively fixed around midnight on the night of September 28th, based on the testimony of a neighbor who heard noises from the vacant apartment at about this time. This murder would have been during Nelson's time on the West Coast, coming a month and a half after the murder of Mary Nesbitt in Oakland, and about two and a half weeks before the murder of Beata Withers in Portland. 24-year-old Marion Corcoran was found in a closet in her home at 6850 Camrose Street in Los Angeles, only a short distance from the Hollywood Bowl, on November 11, 1926. Her husband, David Corcoran, discovered the front door of the house standing wide open, and inside, he saw his wife's feet sticking out of a closet. Clothing had been thrown over the body. Dr. George Burrell determined that the woman had apparently been strangled with a string from an apron in the kitchen. The Corcoran home was up for sale, and it was thought she had been killed by a prospective homebuyer. In the end, however, several detectives of the Los Angeles Homicide Division ruled the case a suicide, after it was discovered that she was quite distressed over financial matters, as well as the deaths of both parents, a young son, and two stillborn babies. After the arrest of Earl Leonard Nelson, the angle that she was strangled by a prospective homebuyer was dredged up, and questions were again raised. I'm inclined to believe that this was indeed, however, a suicide. This would have occurred about a week before the murder of Anna Edmonds. So if Earl Leonard Nelson could claim so many kills, being the most prolific American serial killer for years, and still one of the most prolific, with only Gary Ridgway, Ted Bundy, and John Wayne Gacy claiming more. And, yeah, if you look it up, I'm leaving Clementine Barnabay out of this, as the Southern Axe murders are a confusing mess, and I really doubt she's responsible for all of them that she claimed. Why is he not better known and more spoken of? To put it bluntly, I'm sure one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, is that we here in the United States didn't catch him. Granted, there's many, many police departments involved, and while not all of the investigative details are known, of course, I'm also going to go out on a limb and state that it really seems like Canada did more to actually catch him. Sure, we reported the murders, sometimes ad nauseum to be honest, 
but I can't really find much of anything in the way of steps we took to actually get the guy. Or to put it better, nothing nationwide seems to have been done. The individual departments went after him, the San Francisco police, the Portland police, the Seattle police, etc. But it doesn't seem that we'd put out any sort of national level APB on him, for lack of a better term. It really seems to me that putting out that radio broadcast, getting the quote-unquote regular people searching, is what did it. After all, recall that it essentially wasn't even the police that caught Nelson. Sure, they got involved eventually and might have actually made the arrest, but it was regular people who kept an eye out for the man. Anyway, back when I did episode 17 on the Toledo Clubber, who was an offender who took to the darkened streets, to hit women over the head seemingly at random in Toledo, Ohio, in 1925-1926, I found that the name of Earl Leonard Nelson was occasionally brought up in connection with that case. Any connection would be impossible, though, as Nelson was on the other side of the country at the time, and the crimes of the Toledo Clubber seemed completely unlike him anyway. Another thing, though, that I had forgotten to bring up on that episode is that I'm not certain if the, if the clubber should even be classed as a serial killer. There were a few deaths, true, but all of those seemed very controversial, very uh, debatable as to whether they were actually even the clubber, because, I mean, for example, like, one was shot. So why would you necessarily think a guy who's hitting women over the head is the guy who shot a woman? But it seems to me that the clubber didn't actually intend on killing anyone at all, as most of his victims survived. Probably belongs in the class of the Phantom Stabber of Bridgeport, Jack the Shoe Slasher, and other attackers. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram, at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon, at patreon.com slash forgdark, F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. And so, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.